So it'll be Psalm 8, 1 through 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Lord God, what are we, who are we, that you would think of us, that you would be mindful of us, that God, you would give us responsibility over your creation. God, you are our creator, you are our sustainer, you are our restorer, and yet you call us into the work that you have to accomplish on this earth. God, I pray that we would not run from that responsibility, that we would not be distracted from that responsibility. But Lord, we would take up the crown of glory and honor that you bestow upon us in this responsibility. That God, you would teach us tonight of what it means to have dominion over creation. God, would you be with us tonight? Would you bless us through the teaching of your word, that we would look on our vocation in a whole new way with biblical perspective that you are delighted to give us from your word. God, would you bless us tonight as we think about the jobs that we do, the career path that we're headed towards, or maybe the lack of a job, the unemployment that we may be in. Lord, God, how to see that, how to see your guidance in the midst of that. God, teach us tonight. Uh, be with us as we praise you, uh, your holy name, your majestic name, the name that is to go to all the earth, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good evening. Uh, I want to ask, start our time together by asking you a question. Uh, what comes to mind when you think of the word work? What comes to mind when you think of the word work? Um, for some of us, uh, I think we may think of the word work and think that it's something that needs to be endured uh, for the sake of something better, just like a wedge in between the, the weekends. And immediately a, a couple songs come to mind. Uh, everybody's working. For the weekend, or I don't want to work, I just want to bang on my drum all day, right? We, we, we know these songs, uh, they're catchy tunes. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a catchy tune, aren't I? Um, then for others, work is worshipped, that uh, we devote ourselves too much to work, and that 
we worship our work. It's funny, we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. Kind of mixed up. And we might not label ourselves a workaholic, but we live and breathe our work as the foremost passion of our life, not Christ. And I think many of us are in between those two extremes. We associate work with overwork, uh, maybe a lack of respect, maybe low pay that you think you're not getting paid enough to do what you do. Maybe we look at corporate greed and say, maybe that's a reason why I don't get paid what I get paid uh, or get paid enough. Maybe laziness. Not you, of course, but those that you may be working with. Or a sense of entitlement of that you just deserve better overall. But we've got to ask, is this the way we are supposed to view our work? Is this what God intended? Let's begin by looking at the first command God gives to mankind. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1. Then we'll flip over. Uh, our passage tonight will be based out of Genesis 2. But before we get there, we got to look at uh, kind of a more of a, a broad picture of what is happening in the creation narrative within Genesis chapter 1, we want to see what is God's perspective of work. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28 say this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. What is commanded of man? You saw those phrases. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. As God's representatives, human beings are to rule over every living creature on earth. These commands are not, however, a mandate to exploit the earth out of a sense of human greed. It's not what's being commanded here. Since Adam and Eve are made in the image of God, they use wisdom to govern the beasts of the field, of the sky, and of the water. 
rightly with the same sense of responsibility that, and care that God has toward his creation because they're image bearers. They bear his likeness and they image him and how they rule over creation. Have dominion. That's, that's royal language. It means to rule without exploiting. We are to be stewards, not owners. Stewards taking care of what is not actually ours. We show responsible care for this world that is not our home. We preserve, we restore, we invent, we maximize, we utilize, we rule. And in ruling, we reflect God's character and extend his kingdom. That's what it's about. As we rule, we reflect God's character and we extend his kingdom. This, according to God, is our work. God's people act as an extension of him. We are co-creators with Christ. When we look at our work and say, it is good, we feel a glimmer of God's satisfaction when he looked on his creation each and every day and said, it is good. We feel the same satisfaction, a God-like satisfaction when we're able to look at our work and say, it is good. Now, Genesis 1 offers us a wide scope of the creation narrative. Uh, some of you as students of the Bible have noticed that Genesis 1 uh, is a is a wide angle. Uh, if I can use some film terms with you guys, I got, I like, got to, I got to use my film degree any chance I get it. I get it. So it's a wide angle of what is happening in the creation narrative. And then Genesis two gives us more of a, a, a close up of what exactly happened. It gives us a little greater detail about man's responsibilities in the garden. And so tonight's passage is going to be Genesis chapter two, verses four through 15. Genesis chapter two, Verses 4 through 15. God's word says this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made the, he the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, there is, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. 
The name of the second river is Gahon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Let's pray real quick. In this silence, would you just offer a prayer up to the Lord, asking him to teach you about your job, your career path, or your unemployment from his word. That he would teach you of a biblical perspective of work. Well, Lord God, we thank you and we ask that you would teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the overwhelming point that we can get from Genesis chapter 2 is that work is good. Work is good. And not only that work is good or even was good, it still can be good. Work is and still can be good. The narrative takes place before what we call the fall, Genesis 3. It's where Adam and Eve rebel against their creator and where sin and brokenness enter the world and where it's before where God cursed man. When work became toilsome, laborious, where the field was filled with thorns and we worked and had sweat on our brow. This is before that. The passage we just read is in a state of being that God labeled good. So work is good. And the reason our work right now may be terrible or miserable isn't necessarily because of sin. We need to understand how work is good before we understand why our work right now is bad. The reason work is good and still can be good is because God's sovereignty over us and it. God is sovereign. And in His sovereignty... He has accomplished a few things that we even see here in the garden. First, God is sovereign over our personhood. God is sovereign over our personhood. We get that from verse 7 of this passage. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. God created Adam and Eve. He was intricately involved throughout the process. He creates Adam from dust and breathes life into him. And then we see later in chapter 2 where he takes a rib out of the side of man and creates woman. Again, intricately involved. And he's just as intricately involved in bringing about you, your life. You form my most inward parts, the psalmist says in Psalm 139. You created me in my mother's, you formed me in my mother's womb, the psalmist says. 
And that's your experience and mine. God brought us about and made us people. And as such, he created you with your given strengths as well as weaknesses. He created you with your personality and how you're wired. Things that you're really good at, your geniuses, your competencies, and even your frustrations. God created you that way. And over time, he can even change those things about you. He can sanctify them, make them holy, and he can use them. And the reason for that is because he is sovereign over your personhood. Secondly, God is sovereign over our placement. He is sovereign over our placement. And we get that from verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. God took Adam and Eve and placed them in a garden. And the reason I read the passage about all the rivers that are hard to pronounce, if I'm being honest, because it shows us it's a real place. It was one point in time, a real place. And so is where God has positioned you, right? God has, in his sovereignty, placed you right where you are here in the Memphis-Shelby County area in the year 2021. And he's done so, it wasn't by accident. It's not a mistake. It's with intentionality that he's placed you where he has. He brought you about for such a time and such a place as this. He gave you your parents, your siblings, your household. He positioned you in your particular job or career field or lack thereof because he is sovereign over your placement. And then third, and this is where we're going to spend a bulk of our time tonight. God is sovereign over our purpose. God is sovereign over our purpose. And we get this from verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and to keep it. God made you in his image, that you bear the likeness of God. Now, it's a broken image because of the fall, because of our sin, and yet we are made in the image of God nonetheless that we bear inherent value in us because we, like a, a canvas that an artist has this beautiful picture upon and puts his name in the corner, so we too bear the image of Christ. And you are placed in this world with a marvelous purpose. Yes, we've already said it is to reflect the character of God and to extend his kingdom, but how does that flesh itself out? God is sovereign over your purpose, and that purpose is to work and to keep. To work and to keep. Our purpose is to work and to keep. Now, what do we mean by work and keep? Uh, this form of work is used in a religious sense, often associated with the work of the priests in the sacrificial system. And so we can see how our work is worship. Now, we don't worship our work, 
but we definitely worship through our work. And the word keep is used for obeying God's commandments. Keep my commandments. It's the same word. To work is to labor to make things grow. It's synonymous with nurturing, cultivating, tending, building up, guiding, like we said, ruling. To keep is to protect and to sustain progress already achieved. Right? This is synonymous with observing, guarding, keeping safe, watching over, and maintaining. We can easily picture Adam standing in the garden to work and to keep with one hand bearing a shovel to work, the other hand bearing a sword to keep. He's going to work to see things grow. He's going to keep to maintain what grows, to what success is achieved. In fact, we see this exact picture depicted in Israel's history when they are rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem after they have arrived uh, after exile. Um, Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah says this, when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, work, and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, keep. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other to work, to keep, to work and to keep. This is how man subdues creation and has dominion over it. And God is to be praised for making this so, that this is his design. And that's what we have recorded in our, what we read for our scripture reading in Psalm 8. This, uh, the first and the last verse of that Psalm say the same thing, doesn't it? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We praise God because, as it says in the middle of the psalm, yet you have made man a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That's the psalmist praising God for the plan that he put in place back in the days of the garden. Do you see? It has been God's plan from the very beginning that you would worship him in your work. His desire, his design is for you to glorify him throughout the earth in what you do. Dorothy Sayers uh, is a, was a playwright and a Christian thinker uh, from the mid-20th century. 
Um, and much of her work is often esteemed uh, alongside that of the likes of C.S. Lewis as she writes on Christian doctrine. And she wrote in one of her essays about why Christians work and how Christians work. And she says, and we're going to have the quote uh, on the screen, I believe. Work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but a thing one lives to do. It is, or it should be, the full expression of the worker's faculties, the thing in which he finds spiritual, mental, and bodily satisfaction, and the medium in which he offers himself to God. If Dorothy Sayers is right, and I think she is, as we've seen confirmed by Genesis 1 and 2, then we have to view our work differently and how we work differently. And so I want to give you five consequences of a biblical perspective of work. That if if this is true, that if if work is good, then that's going to mean a few things for how I view my work and maybe how I need to change my attitude towards work or my work, period. Five consequences of a biblical perspective of work. The first, we should not work to get paid. We should not work to get paid. Now, hopefully, if you're working, you are getting paid. But that's not the goal. You do not work to get paid. And so that's going to that's gonna change the way you see things. Because we all know we look forward to payday. We like getting a paycheck, and hey, that, that's good, right? That's a good thing. But when all you're doing is working for that paycheck and the, the things that that buys, that's when it becomes a problem. And so we've got to reassess and ask ourselves, am I miserable at my job? yet delighted in my paycheck? Because if that's the case, then something needs to change. Because we should be living towards doing good work that's going to glorify God, not in buying a variety of things that we think would make us happy. We should not work to get paid. And then similarly to this, secondly, we should not work to enjoy leisure. We should not work to enjoy leisure. Now, again, you're going to experience leisure, and we're going to talk about that later in the series. But that's not why you work, right? We don't work for the weekend. We don't work for the chance to go to the lake. We don't experience misery in our jobs just so we can experience Temporary delight on Friday and Saturday and Sunday? No, the leisure is necessary because we're always looking forward to doing what God has put before us in our occupations. We've got to think about it differently. Third, we should not pursue work that goes against our nature. We should not pursue work that goes against our nature. Now, this one isn't as clear-cut. I'll just be honest about that. But this is more of a gray area. 
about what are you uh, geared and wired by God to do, that not all of us are going to be able to work construction, right? Not all of us are going to be able to think mathematically to solve some of our problems, that God has wired you and gifted you in such a way that you would be more geared towards some jobs than others. That if you're a people person, that you wouldn't be stowed away in a cubicle all day. Or if you actually really like doing work all alone, then you wouldn't be thrown and cast into customer service. So don't choose these jobs that go against your nature because you're going to get frustrated. Fourth, we should not pursue work that goes against God's character. We should not pursue work that goes against God's character. There are some jobs available that if you took, it would be impossible for you to please God in doing them. And so we, we not only say no to those jobs, but we must stop ourselves from even entertaining the possibility of applying for such jobs. That we're not, we're not going after the position of bartender. Right? That there are some things that we're staying away from, far away from, because we know it could diminish our witness for Christ in doing those jobs. We should not pursue work that goes against God's character. And then fifth, what should we do? We should work really hard to obtain and maintain good quality work. We should work really hard to find those jobs and to keep those jobs by which we can do good quality work that will make much of Christ. You get what I'm saying? You got to work hard to get those, those jobs in which you work hard at. We need to work really hard to find good quality work because it is our ministry. It is our ministry. And so I, I want to encourage you, secular work is sacred. Secular work is sacred. And some of you may be, may, I don't know, shrink back from hearing that. Because you think that that's impossible. This can't be my ministry. But I want to encourage you, there's no such thing as a secular and sacred division to work. Before sin, if, if man had never sinned, he would still be working. It is not God's ideal for, man, for man's life to be one of leisurely unemployment. You don't earn the right to retire from worship through work. Just as it is God-like to work, it is ungodly to avoid work when it, you are able to do so. And we do it in a place of God's sovereign choosing. That doesn't mean we don't get a say in it. We believe in the uh, compatibilism, is to use a big word, of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. That when we align ourselves with him in his will, that he gives us the desires of our heart. 
And some of you desire good jobs. And I'm t- keep praying for them. But coming back to this idea that secular work is sacred, Christian people, and particularly, this is Dorothy Sayers' words, not mine, Christian people, and particularly perhaps the Christian clergy, that's me, must get it firmly into their heads that when a man or woman is called to a particular job of secular work, that it is as true a vocation as though he or she were called to specifically religious work. What is she saying there? That I as a pastor can't devalue the things that you do that your work is just as important in the eyes of God as me standing up here preaching God's word. That the things you do are just as important in your workplace as in the church. That there is no division of secular and sacred, that in the eyes of God, it is all sacred. Your work and mine. And it is both of equal value. You need to get that in your head, and so do I. We need to be reminded that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was a carpenter before he was a teacher, and was a teacher before he was our Savior. In fact, Dorothy Sears goes on, and she gives uh, some of her most memorable words. She says, No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor, if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. No piety, godliness, and the worker will compensate for work that is not true to itself. For any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. What is she saying there? She's saying it doesn't matter how godly you are in the workplace if your work is not done with excellence. That you bring reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ if you don't do your job with excellence. And that should, that should straighten us up because we all want to be a good gospel witness in our workplace, I dare say. But sometimes we don't work with excellence in mind, with the excellencies of Jesus Christ in mind. That if he was excellent throughout his work and ministry, if Christ worked with excellence, we as followers of Christ must work with excellence. Our jobs are our ministries. Not in that we share the gospel while we do them, That's important, and there's a time and place for that. But that's not what I'm talking about at this point in time. We'll cover that later in the series, but what I'm trying to get through to you is that we simply must glorify God in the workplace by doing our jobs well, with excellence, in a way that God would be pleased in the fashion and way that we do them. The great reformer, Martin Luther, had much to say on this topic. And his words are better than my own. He says, All works are measured before God by faith alone. Indeed, the menial housework 
of a manservant or maidservant is often more acceptable to God than all the fastings and other works of a monk or a priest because the monk or priest lacks faith. He says the Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on shoes, but by making good shoes because God cares about good craftsmanship. And then finally, and probably my favorite, God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. That God is inserting the numbers in the Excel spreadsheet through your vocation. That God is building the construction site through your vocation. That God's healing hands are being placed upon those in your vocation. That God is seeing clean places, clean bathrooms even, through your vocation. Do you see what I'm getting at? God is at work through you in your workplace. So let's bring him glory through what we do. But this this presents us the question, are you glorifying God in your work? Or to put it another way, are you working to bring glory to God, to glorify God? When you work, do you display God-given skill with a God-honoring attitude and motivation that people have to take notice of? When you work, do you worship God? Not in that you sing songs while you're working or that you play Christian radio while you work, but in that you You do your work to the glory of God with excellence. Now this, in many of you, is going to present a dilemma. Should I stay or should I go? Maybe you realize, I I can't glorify God in my workplace. And so you're, you're primed and ready to put in your two weeks notice in faith. Some of you may need to do that. So I don't want to eliminate that possibility. I think most of you, that's probably a bad idea and you probably don't want to do that. Be wise not to do that. I think for most of us, we've got to look at our work with a whole new perspective, this biblical perspective, and honestly try to glorify God and what he has us doing right now. But others of you, you may say, I, I am not... It is out of my nature to try doing what I'm doing now. And in hearing what you have to say, I I think I am frustrated. And it's probably a holy frustration that I need to take a serious look at who I am and how God has wired me. And hey, that's all a part of our 20s and 30s is growing in self-awareness and say, maybe I can look elsewhere. Maybe I can apply to that job that I thought was just out of my reach. 
pray. Ask God to give you that avenue. And he, if that is his will, he is good to deliver it to you. So I, I can't answer that question for you. Should you stay or should you go? But it is a question worth asking. If you can look at it and say, I am not glorifying God with what I'm doing right now, with how I'm working or the job that I'm working. That those are the type of questions that lead to good, edifying life change that will glorify God in the long run. But whatever you do, Colossians 3.17, in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. That His holiness would be put on display in your workplace. That's what we mean when we talk about the glory of God, that His holiness would be on display. Whether you open your mouth, whether you do everything that you do to the glory of God. If I can inspire you, urge you, motivate you to do anything from this sermon, it's surrender your life to Jesus for His purposes. Maybe you can't glorify God in the workplace because you don't know God personally. That when we talk about Jesus Christ and what he came to do and what he calls you into, the work that he did, the ultimate work he did was die on the cross for your sin. We, we talked about the fall and how the, the world is broken. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Jesus came to remedy that. That we could look at our work and say that it is good that we would be in right relationship with God through the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross for the atonement of our sins and through the grave to be empowered to walk in newness of life, abundant life here and now. That if we would repent of our sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would be saved not just saved to eternity in heaven with our creator, sustainer, restorer, yes and amen, but saved into a life with marvelous purpose. So surrender your life to Jesus for his purposes to reflect the character of God and extend his kingdom. To work and to keep.